0: Our guest today is the mayor of Milwaukee and running for the seat of Oregon House District 41 at the state government level. He has also worked for a number of well-respected institutions as a photographer, having been on assignment for National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, and many others. He is the kind of politician you hope for, rooting for change with all of his heart and dedicating his time in a real effort to make the world a better place. His primary focus, And the reason he left photography for local government is his desire to implement policy that will slow climate change. I had a wonderful time talking to this man. Here is my friend, Mark Gamba. Well, Mark. Yes. You are mayor of Milwaukee. I am. Correct? How is that going? Generally speaking, well. Yeah. Um,
1: You know, being a mayor is kind of a mixed bag always. But uh,
0: the trajectory, the general trajectory for the last seven years has been good. So seven years you've been in office. Yep. Okay. And is there a defined term limit? Yes. Two terms. Two terms. So my second term will be up in January. Okay. So they're four-year terms. Yep. Okay. And it's it's like a regular election. You run, you get elected by the people, you get that for four years, then you have to rerun again. Yep. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So do you have aspirations to go beyond that when your term ends in january i am actually currently running uh, for
1: the oregon house okay. so my state rep karn power uh stepped down in protest for a bill that didn't get passed and uh, she didn't let anybody know she was doing that until like a week before the filing deadline but um so I'm I'm running for that seat.
0: That seems fairly uncommon to just step down over one bill. It is fairly uncommon
1: uh but three women did it simultaneously. What was the bill about? Uh pay equity. Okay. So I don't know if you know this but the Oregon legislature well most elected f- officials in Oregon are not paid or are not paid anything like what anybody thinks they're getting paid. Yeah. Um the legislature's getting paid, I think, around thirty-three thousand dollars a year, and uh, it's a full-time job. You know, people say, "Well, it's only three months, or it's only this or that," right? If you're working, you know, writing the bills, working with your constituents, learning the problems, learning—I mean, everything's complicated these uh-huh. days, right? So it's it's a full-time gig for sure, and they're expected to. Well, the theory. Is that you're you're a citizen legislator, right? So you do, you have your whatever job you have, you do that job, and then you uh, spend a few months a year as you know in in session. Uh, it's, it's a crazy concept that dates back to literally when you know there are the same number of people in Oregon as there are in Tigard, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't make any sense anymore. So
0: you're saying there should be more representatives
1: no not that there should be more representatives necessarily um although that wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea um what they should what they sh- they should be paid for their time because the end result of that and and this is why it's by design the end result of that is that mostly the people that can afford to do that are old rich white men mm, okay cuz you have to be you know self sufficient in order to not work okay and uh, so th- those three women all have kids, um, daycare costs. I mean, Carn was paying pretty close to her whole salary on daycare.
0: Yeah, that's the, the difficult part about uh, if you're in a, a two income family household. I mean, that's typically why One person, usually the man, will go to work and then the woman stays home with the kids because there's a lot of jobs. Oh, 40 years ago, that was true. No, I'm saying saying that used to be the case and it still is the case sometimes now because if you don't exceed a certain threshold, it doesn't make sense for both people to go to work because you're paying so much money for daycare. But the other side of that is almost
1: no job pays well enough that one person can work and support a whole family these days. It's a crazy catch 22, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, we we either have to increase what people are getting paid to stay up with the cost of predominantly housing, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's going up, but housing is the real big that's the elephant in the room. Yes, for sure. Um, and, you know, a, a perfect example, a, a couple uh um, one was a school teacher, and one was an, an attorney for a nonprofit. And they could barely, 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 and this is 10 years ago, afford a house in Milwaukee, barely, and they got a fixer-upper, and they worked on it. But now, they'd be hard-pressed, and that's a couple with two incomes. Mm-hmm. So that's the world we're in right now. So imagine you know, somebody who's an Amazon worker
0: and a Starbucks yeah. worker or a, you know,
1: It's not possible. Not gonna happen.
0: No, you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I just bought a house in Gresham in uh, September for $405,000. And I was lucky to get it at that amount. All the other houses I put in bids on, people were coming in with 20, 30 grand on top. I can't compete with that. I could barely afford what I have now. And that house has already increased in value 30 or 40 grand in six months. Oh yeah. It's insane. And I, it's, it's not a $400,000 house. It's like a $250,000 house. Yeah, a, f- a friend of mine
1: lost a bid the other day to somebody that put in an extra $200,000. And this, we're not talking about a million dollar house. We're talking about a 600, $700,000 house. Yeah, it's wild. It's, yeah, it's, it's nuts. And it's, you know, we see all the homeless folks out on the streets and everybody decries that mm-hmm. for, for both sides, right? The, the people that are just heartbroken at the horrific lives that those people are living and the people that are disgusted by mm-hmm. that, right? So I'm, I'm hearing them both at the doors because I'm spending a lot of time at the doors these days. And that's a result of what we've been doing in the society for, I don't know, at least since Reagan, yeah. probably before that. Um, but this whole concept and and structure of our economic system that basically funnels wealth to the top, whatever, 1%, 0.1%, whatever they are. Um, and everybody else is just getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why there's this huge division and all this anger and all this frustration and people freaking out about masks It wasn't about masks. people are just upset mm-hmm. they're just
0: you know their their lives suck yeah well it's a lot easier to make money when you have money yep you can reinvest and purchase land and do all kinds of stuff well but and if, not pay taxes yeah yeah i mean there, there's there are definite issues with um the tax code and it is It's unfortunate, but it's not their fault. They have good lawyers who exploit the system. The system is at fault. You need to rewrite the system because they're not doing anything illegal. Agreed, except
1: who wrote the bills that became that system. Legislators that were paid by rich people. Bingo. Yes.
0: So it's how do you fix that?
1: You stop electing legislators that are millionaires. That's a good start. Stop electing legislators that are deep in the pockets of other millionaires and start electing people like AOC and, you know, Jamie McCloud Skinner right now running against one of Oregon's millionaire congresspeople. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get a, you know, a plurality of, of congresspeople that are like that, Then we have a shot maybe at beginning to reverse the system but otherwise we're just going to continue to see more and more homeless people more and more division in the country more and more pain the average family is going to be more and more uncomfortable
0: well a lot of it has to do with uh i forget what year but it's only been about 10 years or so when they uh allowed political action committees to raise as much money as they possibly could without really specifying where it came from. So that you buy elections now.
1: Yep. Well, there's a classic example, like an unbelievable example happening right now in Oregon in the sixth congressional district. So that's the new, our new district, the newly Uh drawn district. So there's not an incumbent there. Um, And there were, I don't even know anymore, there were seven or eight people running on the Democratic side, and another handful on the Republican side. One of the people on the Democratic side, Carrick Flynn, I'm gonna name name. sorry.
0: I, I asked him to come down and Did you? talk to me.
1: Yeah, I he, didn't get a
0: response. I, yeah,
1: and big surprise, because the one time he's actually talked to anybody, he said some stuff that are people like, wait, what? <laughs> this is a guy that's like polling because there's a, a Bitcoin or whatever, Dogecoin, I don't know what it is, billionaire. Yep who's utterly financing this guy's campaign mm-hmm. to the tune of like $7 million, I think $8 million, something mm-hmm. like that right now. So there's constant barrage of ads. And I, I heard four on the radio the other day, just driving from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy has voted exactly twice in Oregon. He hasn't lived in Oregon for years, decades, I think. He, he grew up here. He grew up and then he moved away from a long time. Yeah, he's been yeah. in DC for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's come back. He doesn't really have any experience of dealing with Oregon issues because he's been in DC for however long. And certainly he's running against people with a lot more credibility politically. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and he's gonna probably win, but he's got no business winning. Well, why is, why is that position so important? Because it's a newly created district? No, just because that's
1: yet another congressperson that will be owned by yet another billionaire. Utterly
0: owned. Some people would argue that it's different if it's somebody involved with crypto. Yeah, I, um,
1: you know, that remains to be seen. I, I know that the theory behind crypto is that that will cause the the sort of
0: democratization of wealth and blah, 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 it's- It It could be a good thing, but there are far too many people in control of our money for them to allow it to happen. So I don't quite know exactly how things are gonna turn out, but in theory, it is a wonderful idea to be able to transfer wealth amongst people without dealing with Goldman Sachs or Bank of America, or any other middleman that is going to charge you $30 for an overdraft fee. Those institutions are not necessary anymore. And they have a significant stake in making sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And if they see it
1: starting, that it becomes inevitable, I guarantee you they'll own
0: it. Oh, they'll get into it. I, I, I guarantee they have interests in various uh, coins, uh, Ether and, and Bitcoin. I'm sure there are a bunch of banks that are invested in that because they know there, there's significant uh, benefits yeah. to the success of it. And there are a lot of people making a lot of money. Uh, but the, the interesting thing to me is that you have uh, this guy who is running for this new district. And like you've said, as far as we can tell, he's not really talking to anybody. He's just kind of like a face in a, a bunch of commercials. It'd be cool to hear what he really has to say. I don't know. Well, he d- he did do
1: one interview recently um, that has made a splash because it's the only time he's talked to anybody. Mm-hmm. And he said things like, you know... Um, he has empathy for timber unity, for example. And yeah. Timber unity? Do you know what that is? No. It is a pack, another political pack, that is um, essentially the muscle uh, for the far right in Oregon. It's predominantly funded by a couple of really large timber uh, barons. Okay and so they go after they they look for vulnerable democrats and and you know prop up, up a republican in that seat and go after them um, it's about as anti-environmental anti anything good that uh-huh. you can imagine because you know they're playing on the pain that the, the folks in the timber industry have be- over the loss of basically their lifestyle yeah. right um but they aren't them, right? They're the they're the millionaires that benefited from for years of for sure. of their work, and then mechanized their jobs, right? So, like a, a tim- typical timber crew back in the day was fourteen guys, right? Now it's two, and a big machine. Yeah, and then they offshored all those mill jobs, so all those mills that were in every every town, you know. Ha- basically grew up around a mill in Oregon. And all those mills, almost
0: all those mills are gone and they're all offshore. Well, this is a recurring issue with every industry. Sure. If Americans want cheap products, it, they get manufactured in other countries because labor is less for the corporation. So what what do we do? I, I mean, if you want to maintain your lifestyle of getting certain products at certain uh, uh, financial levels, those jobs will go away. We People need to work. People need stuff to do here. Technology gets better. There are uh, machines that go into uh, t- the uh, forest and chop down the trees. Like we have all these people that need something to do. And I don't know what the answer is. You, you what kind of job do you just give somebody when their industry disappears?
1: Well, there's actually two parts to that. and There's a, there's a little bit of a misnomer there, that whole concept of things got offshored because we want cheap products. Huh. They got offshored because there was a bigger profit margin for sure. the billionaires sure. and the millionaires. If you look today, um, what was it I read a while back? Uh, If you buy a Big Mac in the US where somebody's getting paid 12 bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour to work, it's X. And if you buy it in uh, Copenhagen where that same person is making $24 an hour, Mm -hmm. it's only like a quarter more Mm -hmm. for that Big Mac. So it doesn't, the the cost of products are less, less the issue and it's more the profit margin for the millionaires. Okay. So that that's one of the misnomers. Um there was something else she said and I wanted to
0: dang. <laughs> Actually, I almost took notes and I was like, no, I can't write on his contract. <laughs> no, I don't like, care, I'm... you write on it. <laughs> um I I just see us running into a problem with you, People need stuff to do. You, not everyone's gonna be an artist. Not everyone's gonna sit around and take pictures or draw uh, on a canvas. Like People want stuff to do. There are a significant amount of people who want to get up every day and go to work. Even if it's some shitty job that they hate, people like to have purpose. Sure. And that's the issue we're gonna run into very soon is what is your purpose and what do you give to the community how do you get compensated for your time? There are all these very existential uh, threats that are coming to us because life is not the same. It, it's not going to be the same way it's been for the last no. five hundred
1: years. No, everything is changing. I remembered what I was thinking. Okay, go back to it. Um, all these products that we've offshored, right? And it's virtually everything. I mean pick up anything oh yeah made in china yeah a- anything that we have virtually is is made somewhere else and a lot of that's in china and if you talk to the geopolitical whizzes and ask them you know what are our biggest threats in the world they'll say yeah russia and china think about that yeah we got a taste of it during the pandemic right all of a sudden we couldn't get masks we had a pandemic people were dying Doctors were wearing the same PPE for like a week. You know, they're supposed to change it out with every patient. And they were wearing, you know, why? Because our source of all that stuff was China and they were locked down. So play that out. Play that out. Them deciding at some point to really hammer us. They could just stop the flow of literally everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. So just from a from a completely uh, you know almost a Republican standpoint of protecting the United States, we should not allow the offshoring of every bloody thing that we need in this country. Mm-hmm. There should actually be some kind of system that maintains a lot of that production here.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's like what's happening uh, with natural gas in Europe right now, right? Germany, everybody's trying to level sanctions against uh, Russia to try to squash them because they're trying to say uh, the the Ukraine invasion is a horrible thing. And it is a horrible thing. But they're trying to stick it to, to Putin. And the natural gas that flows into Germany, Germany's like, we have to buy it from them. If we don't, then we can't heat the country. So when you are completely relying upon another country, that's that's a, a strong arm they have to guarantee that you're gonna keep coming to them. Yeah. And I, I guess you can't produce everything yourself for every single country, but it's weird when you get into these positions. Uh, and China is so interesting because they have an immense amount of power over us, even in just like the entertainment industry. You have, I know it happened to LeBron, it happened to John Cena, it's happened to all these these major entertainment figures where they uh, make a comment, usually about Taiwan, uh, but they make some comment and China freaks out and then they have to go back and apologize because the market in China for entertainment and for movies and for uh, buying product from them. It's so immense. Everybody's afraid to piss off China. So it's this weird thing where you really can't stand up for anything at certain positions uh, of power. You can't say, we're done with you China because we rely on them for so much. I mean, even just the entertainment industry, even just Hollywood. They wouldn't, I mean, China could, is doing horrendous stuff all the time, nobody can stand up to them. Yep. Yep.
1: <laughs> no, and, and, and I'm sure, I mean, it's, it, it's really easy for us to sit in that position and look at that and, and feel that and imagine how so many of the other countries in
0: the world feel about us. Oh, yeah. It's very similar. No, it's very And total. has been for decades. Uh, for hundreds of years, I'm sure since we came into existence. Certainly since World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all this weird power struggle. And that's the disappointing part is that people don't usually realize that uh, we all are interdependent on each other. And we're all just hanging out on the same planet, breathing the same oxygen, trying to raise kids. Like everybody's really trying to do the same thing, but there's all this weird strife constantly. It's so annoying.
1: Yeah, and it's typically not caused by us. No. Right? It's caused by a handful of the wealth, the, the kings, right? Mm-hmm. The, the modern-day kings. For sure. Uh, are are the ones starting the wars and, and causing the flow of some particular product to not flow somewhere, strong-arm somebody to do something. Yeah. It's... Um, the world really hasn't changed that much from that standpoint, that the vast majority of the population has a lot less control over their lives than than they would like to
0: think or yeah. would hope. Yeah. Yeah, you think it's gotten worse in the last
1: 50 years? I think it, it,
0: it's, you know, it's cyclic like everything else. Yeah.
1: Um. And I think we are at a, a point right now, particularly in America, but but really worldwide, where we're seeing the chickens come home to roost of that sort of the neocon economic model. Um, and and it's it's bumming people out everywhere. I mean, at all levels. I you know, I've knocking doors in Eastmoreland. That's one of the tonier neighborhoods in in the Portland Metro region. There's some very unhappy people. Yeah. Yeah. People talking about I'm moving out. I'm, and I'm like,
0: where are you going to go? What, okay, so what what is the general consensus? Why are people so pissed in Portland right now? Um, two basic
1: issues. One is the the houseless issue. The, there's so many of those folks on the streets. They're very obvious. You know, it's not like, um, you know, they're being tucked away somewhere mm-hmm. or being kept out of sight, so that so that all the the good people can feel comfortable, right? They have to have that in their face every day that we have a society that's doing that to people.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that's the one reason, what's the other one? Crime. Crime? Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, I don't, Portland is. Portland has handled so many things so poorly in the last several
0: years. And you, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but where, where's the failure at? <laughs>
1: It's the same place I got in trouble with the Willamette week.
0: Well, I mean, you don't have to go there if you don't want to, Uh, but. (laughs) uh, Really? Really?
1: And it's not one person's fault. Uh, um, It's Portland's form of government is really bad. It's really bad. There's only one other city in the entire country that still has that form of government.
0: Okay. So explain that, elaborate on that. What
1: does it do? Okay. So I have to draw the comparison to make it clear in Milwaukee. There's a city council. There's a mayor. They set policy. They say, these are the things we care about. These are the things we want to change, right? But not so much of a how. We do get some interplay on the how when it starts to relate to budget and things like that. But we say, do this, and then the city manager and all of her departments and department leads figure out how to do that, and they do it. And as long as the council stays consistent, they can do it very effectively. What can happen is there can be flip-flopping with elections every two years, right? Um, what I set in place when I took office was to do a really powerful visioning process throughout the city, and we wrote a vision. And that vision is literally what the council and then that that sort of whole power of the city is moving towards, is is creating that vision. So we're all moving in one direction and trying to solve those problems. As opposed to Portland, which elects a city council at large, they're not districts. Milwaukee's not districts either, but we're tiny. A city like the size of Portland, most cities, Chicago, New York, whatever, they have you know districts that each councilor is elected from. So Portland doesn't have districts, everybody's at large. And then apropos of nothing, each of those city commissioners, they're not counselors, they're commissioners, becomes the, the the head of a department, a specific department. So for example, Joanne Hardesty right now is the head of the of Peabot, right? Portland Department of Transportation. She's got some experience in that. She's doing a relatively decent job. But you look back through the past history of Portland and who's been put in places of power, they haven't necessarily walked in with any experience whatsoever in that realm. And they're certainly not elected to do that thing. They're not elected to be the the, the, the mayor appoints them. The mayor appoints them. Okay, that's the key. That's the key. So so a, they're not elected. So nobody's judging as they're being elected. Is this person going to be a great leader of a department of transportation? Is this person going to be a great leader of a depa- water department, right? That's not how it's happening. It's just those get handed out by the mayor. So that's one aspect that's really bad, that the person running a department has no, not doesn't necessarily have any experience doing that. The other part is then they have these little fiefdoms that they're trying to protect. And a lot of issues are very um, interconnected, right? So houseless is a perfect example, mm-hmm. right? Who's, whose problem is that? Well, housing, ostensibly, but if you're then trying to build, say, camps, really cool camps like Eugene has done mm-hmm. with their little Conestoga wagons where you, know, you have a place that is safe, you're gonna stay out of the weather, you've got bathroom facilities, you've got, you you know, got shower facilities, trash, it's organized, it's comfortable, and social services knows where to find you, more importantly, mm-hmm. so that they can begin to help you. Instead, because this department owns all the vacant land that Portland has, but they have nothing to do with the houseless issue, but this department needs some vacant land to be able to do some of those camps, and it becomes this fight between those two departments. So instead of having a vision that a council is saying this let's do this thing and then the person who's in charge of that saying okay, you know, public works, I need you to do this, cops, I need you to do that and so then we're solving that problem, mm-hmm. right? That's not the way
0: Portland works. And it's really become obvious. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, and I could be totally wrong, but it seems like nothing really gets handled in Portland. It seems like th- there's just issues, ongoing issues, and no one can do anything. It's like there's too many checks and balances. I don't know if it's checks and balances
1: so much. It's just a lack of coordination. Mm. And 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 the part, oh, here I go again. Ted's just gonna hate me forever. Um, It is a little bit incumbent on the mayor to set a vision, to Mm -hmm. set a tone, to set a direction Mm -hmm. and and to hold to that, right? Even when it's painful, like even when the thing you logically need to do to solve the problem is gonna step on some big businesses toes, you have to be able to stick to your guns and do that thing. And that's not so much what happens in Portland.
0: Yeah. Well, how, how long is the, the mayor's term in Portland? Uh, Ted was elected two years after me. I
1: can't remember if Portland has term limits or not. I, I don't actually remember that. Huh. So he's been in, this will be the end of his uh, second term, in, well, uh, two years from now, two years from January, and be the end of his second term. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I think the bigger issue, m- way bigger issue, is the form of government. And Mm -hmm. and that Portlanders are gonna have an opportunity to change theoretically in November. Really? Yeah, there's been a charter review process happening and that's gonna come before the council or come before the voters. So I'm recalling what I read some time ago correctly, which 50-50
0: shot
1: here. (laughs) Um, it, It does create districts, it... Says there will be three representatives from each each district. Um, the mayor is a non-voting person, but the mayor hires the city manager. I think
0: that's where they landed. Which but don't hold me. To which that. will be in Far superior. Far okay. superior. It's yeah. What 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 are the other cities in the country that have this same form of government? There's only one, and it's somewhere in like Louisiana or someplace. Oh yeah. Portland's the only major city that has this form of government. Yes, yes. And it's just because it's been that way forever and no one changed it? Pretty much. Yeah, so
1: you look at cities like Chicago, New York, LA, Los Angeles, or LA, San Diego, you know, any any other major city, typically they're a strong mayor form of government, which means they don't have a city manager per se, the mayor actually hires and fires the directors, department heads, and then sort of runs the city. That's what a strong mayor concept is. The, uh, Beaverton was a strong mayor for a while. They just changed it back to uh, the city manager form of government, mm-hmm. which I think most people would probably say, well, I don't know, for really big cities, strong mayor is is not a bad idea, but I think the city manager form of government is, is certainly superior for anything less than a really big city.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, why, in your opinion, why continue? Why continue trying to be the mayor of a city versus go to the state legislature, which is what you're going to do? Why wouldn't you go for mayor of Portland or mayor of Cincinnati or something? Why, why choose to go to the state government? Well, because I don't live in Portland or Cincinnati,
1: so you know there, there are people who have asked me to move to Portland and run for mayor. Yeah. Um, I th- you know, I think there's, there's different, different aspects, okay. We should start with why I got into politics in the first place. Let's do it. Okay. And then remember the question you asked me because I, I'm gonna have to explain a lot otherwise. Okay. Um, I was, as you, uh, well, we, we haven't talked about that in, in the interview yet, but I used to be an, a photographer. Yes. Um, one of my clients for many years was National Geographic and on assignments for them, as well as assignments for some of the other clients, I was seeing changes take place in the real world, physical changes in the natural world that weren't predicted to occur for at least another 20 years. Like I had read the climate science, right? I'd I'd read the predictions of, you know, we will see glaciers start to melt back at this point. We will see potentially coral reefs start to, bleach and die at this point. And I was seeing that 20 years earlier than had been w- predicted. And that freaked me out because I also am very clear how this plays out. I'm very clear how climate change if left unaddressed plays out. And that is very poorly for the human race mm-hmm. and, and most of the rest of the species on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um so actually it was uh, the 2000 presidential election when uh, the Supreme Court gave gave the election to Bush over Gore. Mm-hmm. So you had the only presidential candidate that had actually spoken uh, very aggressively in support of doing something about climate change, running against an oil baron, in essence. I mean, that, boiling it down, that's what it was. Yeah, And the oil baron got put in office. And I went into it this tailspin. I mean, personally, uh, my ex-wife will tell you stories. It <laughs> was, it, it was, yeah, it was ugly. It was, um, it was a very dark time for me hmm. because um, I just assumed that America was not so stupid that it would elect
0: George Bush over Al Gore, mm-hmm. given everything that was going on. Um, so that one event was the catalyst for you deciding to get into politics? It, yeah, because as I stewed in that for years,
1: I was just like, I gotta do something. And you know, I'm not a millionaire, so I can't run for president, that's out. Um, so I eventually got on the planning commission in the city because I had talked to the planners and they said, well, we're gonna be doing some code that would allow you to cause changes that would have an effect. So I did that. That was still very volunteer time kind of thing. I could still do my job still you know, run my business. And then when I saw that good ideas were not being implemented by the city council, I was like, okay, I'm gonna run for city council. And so I ran for city council, that ate up more time, and my business started to suffer. Mm-hmm. And um, when I realized that being the mayor, even though it's still only one vote on the council, you set the tone, you set the vision, and um, so to two and a half years later, whatever it was. I
0: ran for mayor. And I've been the mayor for seven years. And we, we talked about money at the start. Is that position a paid position? $300 a month. $300 a month. <laughs> Why even give you anything? I know. What does $300 do?
1: I, you know, it was set in the charter, I think. Um, and it hasn't changed since, well, it, it did just change recently, where they're, they're giving a, a cost of living increase on that every year, right? $310 now? Yeah, 372 <laughs> or you know, whatever it is. Um, it's pathetic. Uh, and, and
0: and virtually every mayor in the state of Oregon is in the same boat. Yeah, I, re- I grew up in the Dalles and I remember somebody telling me that he doesn't get paid anything. Yeah, that's, that's very common,
1: but a stipend is the most common. And it's you know it ranges anything from you know sixty bucks to I think there's some cities out there that might be doing a thousand or something like that but it's it's pathetic and it, and it you know to do the job well a lot of people God you've done such a great job being mayor yeah I gave up my life to do that yeah literally gave up my life and that's what it takes so unless you are an old rich white man right that can afford to just not do anything to, to make a living. And you can just concentrate on doing that. And by the way, you know, be doing it for the right reasons, which if you're an old witch, white man, is really unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, you could be golfing. I know. <laughs> well, I could certainly still be doing what I used to do, which was awesome, Yeah. right? Traveling around the world, taking pictures of cool stuff. That, uh-huh. that was a great job. Um, but I've been really effective. We've passed one of the strongest climate action plans in the state. We set that vision that I talked about. You know, we're changing so much about the city. And it's obvious even to people that don't live in the city. I'm knocking doors up in, again, East Moreland. I knocked this one door, and this lady had a smile on her face when she answered the door. And I started my little spiel, assuming she didn't have any idea. Who she had. I know who you are, Mark. Mm-hmm. I've, been, I've been following you. Nice. I'm voting for you. Nice. Can I write you a check? <laughs> it's literally that was the conversation. Um, so people are noticing the change in Milwaukee, right? Cool. And and a lot of people would like to see that in their cities. And they, you know, I've had like people from four or five different cities say, "Please move to my city and beat the mayor." But it wasn't because I'm some really special human being. It's because I'm a human being that's paying attention and is willing to put in the work and give up whatever
0: it took to put the time in mm-hmm. to do the work. So if you go to the state, you have the opportunity to make broad changes statewide instead of just within the district of Milwaukee. Exactly. Yeah. So if you could somehow get, this might sound stupid, but if you could somehow get involved with the, 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 the people that meet in Paris for the Paris climate agreement. Like, is that the ultimate? Mm, I mean, it would
1: be interesting to go, but, um, and I could have gone this year. There were mayors that went. Those agreements are pretty much worth the paper they're written on. Yeah. Unless the countries involved are gonna actually live up to them. And you saw, I mean, Trump walked away from the Paris Agreement. So for four years we did nothing. We went backwards. Mm-hmm. He he was he was undoing things that Obama had done that would yeah. have moved us in the right direction. And we certainly don't have a legislature that's concentrating on that. Right? Kurt Schrader was one of the congressmen that helped separate the um, Build Back Better bill from the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill has a couple of little dibble dabbles in climate stuff, but the real meat and potatoes was in the Build Back Better bill. He is heavily fossil fuel funded,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So it was in his interest, or in his funders' interests, to see those bills get separated so that then Manchin couldn't could stop the Build Back Better bill. Mm. If they were together, then that's
0: him stopping the infrastructure bill. That's not going to play so well with the voters. Yeah, there's there's so many little pet projects that get lumped in with those huge bills, and then when people deny them, uh, they get labeled as denying the the core thing. But there's so many other things involved. I wish they would just say, "This is the one thing. Vote on this. This is the other thing." But that's not how it works in no, federal Congress.
1: They they do try and lump a th- lot of stuff together, and it's 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 all an algorithm right if if because if they if they do a bill that's just about infrastructure really well infrastructure should be a slam dunk infrastructure you know rebuilding the road keeping the roads in good shape yeah nobody's going to vote against that so so you don't have to play games with that but what they were what the democrats were trying to do was tie the bill that would actually do some climate work to that bill so that it would force the poor Democrats, the bad Democrats like Schrader and Manchin to vote for the Build Back Better bill. Didn't work, they they got it separated and now the Build Back Better is not happening. But you're right, in the Build Back Better bill, there was a ton of stuff and in it, superficially, it doesn't seem related. And I'm sure there were things in there that aren't, right? But again, everything is so complicated and everything is so interrelated these days that when you're trying to solve this problem, if you don't do this, which kind of seems utterly unconnected, an unintended consequence of this one hurts this, Mm -hmm. right? And what has been happening within the movement, which I think is a good idea, um, well, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. Whether or not it's a feasible political thing to do is a different question, but you know, every other major shift in society, every time society has gone from the horse and buggy to the car, or from the, you know, think about those kind of major shifts. Always people of color and the poor are left behind. Like wherever they were, they're now worse off because of that shift. So what they've been trying to do the people that I respect in Congress were trying to say, okay, with this shift that we must make to solve climate change, let's make sure that, that the people that always get left behind actually aren't Good. for a change. So there's a lot of social issues tied in with the Build Back Better bill for that reason. You know, you could argue, and many do, that. Climate's the bigger problem. Let's get it solved. And then let's do the social issues. But we've always done
0: that. Yeah, but climate kills everyone. It does kill everyone. So that's pretty big. (laughs) Yep. Yep. If we could only
1: get the rich people to understand
0: that because they they
1: still think that they're going to be able to live in their little bubble somewhere, you know, their dome with their own hospital and their own farmers and all their own stuff. They'll have
0: rocket ships to Mars. Yeah,
1: or that. They're set. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's what's so frustrating to me about politics is nothing, it seems like so much more could get done if there weren't all these things happening in the background. It sounds like like you go to the grocery store and you are going to buy like a, a turkey dinner and then like your kid throws in a pack of gum and then your other kid throws in like a candy bar. You're like, no, we're not getting that. We're just getting the turkey dinner. Like, let's just do that one thing and we'll worry about the other stuff later. And because all those little things get tied in, then that allows different people to vote for different scenarios. It just—it seems like nothing gets done.
1: I'm sure that's part of it. I am—you know—I'm not going to for five seconds defend the way the federal government functions. It is completely dysfunctional. I would say the bigger piece, the bigger problem there, is that. The vast, the majority of the people in Congress, A, are millionaires, and B, are in the pockets of other millionaires and billionaires. Okay, so they're going to do what is beneficial to them. For sure. All right, the fossil fuel industry is one of the wealthiest industries ever in humankind. They do not want the changes that we must make in order to save the... We all used to get to say to save the planet, Mm -hmm. but as George Carlin pointed out, the planet will be fine. The planet will be fine. Yeah, it's us that's screwed. Yeah, right. So I'm always trying to think of a pithy way to say it, but to basically save the human race and all the other critters that we share this planet with,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: the fossil fuel industry is going to have to take a hit, big one. Oh yeah, and they're not willing to do that, and they just don't care, Mm -hmm. and so they own most of Congress. They own all the Republicans and they own enough Democrats that nothing gets done. Yeah. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. It's a good way to keep making money. 70% of of Americans believe in climate change, believe we should be doing something about it, but it doesn't happen. 70%-ish believe we should have universal health care, like the rest of the planet. Mm -hmm. Again, doesn't happen. Why? insurance industry, pharmaceutical industry, hospital industry, a lot of profits there. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and we're still on the standard measurement system. Like what are we we doing?
1: So you're not old enough, I don't think, to remember when we were all being trained in both. Oh, really? When I was in school, when I was a kid, um, I'm gonna say grade school, we were learning the metric system and the, English, no, what do we call it? Standard? Standard, Yeah. whatever. Um, because we were supposed to be transitioning. We were like, within a few years, we were gonna switch to metric. I don't know who killed that, <laughs> but somebody killed it.
0: America's better. Oh my God. The, I mean, think about it, it's called standard, and then there's the other one. <laughs> and every other country uses the other one. <laughs> yeah. oh my God. Uh, well, f- to me, um, I wonder, I wonder how there there's so many large corporations. There's um, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Meta actually is Meta, Google, <laughs> uh, Google. Um, there there are thousands of companies that run everything off the internet. They are capable of running servers in locations, acquiring pictures, acquiring data, doing all kinds of good and nefarious things in the background. They've got it all figured out. But then in this country and a lot of countries, you walk to a booth and you take a piece of paper and you scribble in a box. Why can't we figure out how to use our phone? And then you know what? The federal government says, hey, 300 million people who live in the United States or 200 million that are of, of voting age. Why don't you check a box on your phone in the app that says you believe in climate change and you want us to do something about it? Why can't they figure that out? Oh, they
1: can. It's not a, it's not a can, it's, it's not an issue. I mean, we can solve climate change. We have all the technology we need right now, every bit of it. It is literally about profits. It's literally about somebody's going to take a hit on their profits. That's all it's about. That's all it's about. That's why they're controlling the the voting system still. I mean, Oregon has gone way further than most of the rest of the states, right? You get your ballot in the mail, you have two weeks sitting at your kitchen table mm-hmm. instead of taking your cheat sheet into that stupid little booth mm-hmm. that you are talking about. Um, now, uh, at least we could go to what Oregon's done, right? At least we could do that.
0: Well, they freaked out about that in 2020.
1: You know why? Because people that had never had an opportunity to vote before voted and they lost. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the whole system's not good. Nope. It's not good. (laughs) But your goal is to get in there and try to make some changes. Yep. And so what what can you do to uh make oregon's impact stronger against climate change what do you plan on on processing or or putting through so there's there's a couple areas that that i want to
1: engage in immediately um one of them is to utilize so our biggest ghd uh impact is transportation still, right? A lot of people are, are pinning the solution to that on electric cars, not gonna happen fast enough. The solution that is working in many places in the, in the world, not in this country, but in the rest of the world, is to say, in this geographic area, from this hour to this hour, if you enter in a car, Single occupancy vehicle, you will pay twenty five bucks or whatever it is. I don't, you know. So London does it, Stockholm does it, uh, Singapore does it. A lot of places. It's called congestion pricing. It's like a toll. It's not. It's all. You don't. You're not throwing quarters in a booth, right? It's. It just your your smartphone is in your car or whatever, and you go into that and you get dinged. Okay. And the smart part of all that is that then they take that money that they make and they put it into mass transit and they put it into bike pad and they put it into ways to get people to where they're going without using a gasoline-powered car. So you've got the double dynamic, right? One is you've now priced being in that area in a car that's now expensive. And you've taken that money and made it so that everybody else, who can't afford that $25 can actually get where they need to go on the train, on the bus, on a bike, whatever. I mean, London's doing this really cool thing. They're building this bike highway floating on the Thames Hmm. because that was the cheapest land they could get, (laughs) right? And so people are gonna be able to get places in London on a bike faster than any other way. Well, I don't know why you'd wanna drive a car in London anyway.
0: That sounds like a nightmare.
1: It is, it is. Um, it, it's a nightmare in most cities. I yeah. mean, when was the last time you drove in New York City? Never. Yeah, I did for six years, and I'll tell you, it's insane. Um, but but you know, Denver, LA, LA for God's sakes.
0: I mean, that's that is a nightmare. Isn't the argument for LA though that everybody drives in their car anyway, and it's so spread out that there's no there's no way to fix it? Well. They're spending what is it, a couple
1: billion dollars putting in a light rail system right now. Really? Yeah. So they've they've figured out that, you know, adding another lane to the twelve lane highway is not going to solve the problem. <laughs> because it just keeps not solving it. Right. Yeah. It's called induced demand. Right. You have a four lane highway, you add two lanes, and six months later, a year later, it's all full again. Yeah. So you haven't solved the congestion problem. You've just allowed that many more cars to congest and pollute. So everyone who's paying attention knows that and knows that we aren't gonna solve any of those problems by continuing to widen the freeways. We have to create
0: other ways for people to get around. So you you were in, in line with creating this zone that costs more to enter during certain hours. Congestion
1: pricing, yeah. yeah. Honest to God, real, Odot right now is calling their stupid tolling concept congestion pricing, and, and they're only doing that because they're not going to charge the tolls when um, when there's not a lot of traffic. They're only going to charge the tolls when there's a lot of traffic. But the the problem is with their thing, it's just on the interstate, uh-huh. right? So what are people going to do? Go on the other roads? Yeah, yeah. So you know, in some places that'll be a pain in the ass. In like West Lynn that's gonna be a nightmare because yeah. there's like two roads <laughs> that parallel 205.
0: Well, it, it's the same thing that happened with Waze. Waze will send you down other weird roads and then everybody goes that same route and then it's like driving on the freeway.
1: Yeah. 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 Everything got more, yeah. We all, we all love that new technology. I use Google Maps and that Waze, but it does the same thing. hmm Yeah. Yeah. So what else? So that's, that's one bill that I would like to push and it's gonna be a big deal. Um, The other one is building energy. We haven't touched building energy in this state at all. What about nuclear? So you're asking me, do I think nuclear is a solution to climate change? Yes. No. No. For two reasons. Well, large scale nuclear takes 20, 30 years to come online. So if we said tomorrow, okay, here's $10 billion, go build some nuke plants, too late. By the time we get them up and running, it's too late. There are some interesting things. Uh, there's a company called New Scale that's okay. doing these really tiny nuclear reactors. Um, they're much safer. Uh, if there is a problem, the problem will be not anything like Chernobyl. Um, th- those have potential, they can come online faster. Uh, so there is some possibility there. We have the capacity. So just, just offshore wind energy alone, if we built the offshore wind energy that Oregon has been mapped out to be able to have, we would be making, I, I mean, again, I'm gonna probably screw up the numbers, so don't anybody hold me to this, but I believe it was three times the amount of energy that Oregon needs just in the offshore wind
0: potential. But how, what does that mean? Like how many windmills do you have to build? I don't know. A lot, probably. Probably. Yeah. But still, it's, you know, when
1: there's an overabundance of wind, uh, you know, it's like, what, what's the joke? Um, what do you what do you call a, a spill on a for a, for a solar array a sunny day? Uh-huh. I mean, it's like when there's problems, the worst nothing bad happens. Yeah, that's that's the beauty of things like wind, solar, tidal energy, wave energy. Right, you're not building something that has a real downside to it. Nukes have some pretty significant downsides. One is the obvious potential that we have saw in Fukushima, that we saw in Chernobyl, which is real and scary, particularly in a place that's supposed to have some really big earthquakes coming up. Mm-hmm. But the other piece that n- people talk about less, but is actually significant, is what do we do with the waste? Yeah. We don't have a good solution to that yet. Mm-hmm. We're doing all
0: kinds of crazy things with it, but there's no good solution. Yeah, it seems like the two greatest options, and we just haven't figured out how to harness it the right way, is water or sun. You could get enough energy from the sun. What else do you need? Yeah, yeah, and wind is also very good. It's, it. it
1: you can do, because they build those windmills so big, mm-hmm. they produce so much energy with just one windmill. Um and there's a lot of places that the wind blows all the time. I mean, Hood River's entire economy
0: is built on that fact. <laughs> well, yeah, if you drive out 84 and you look up into Washington, they're all over the place. I yeah. have a friend that builds them out there.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, we, can, we can solve the problem we have with the technology we have today. And, and all of those technologies are just gonna get better, right? Solar panels are gonna get more efficient, all that stuff. We just have to say, we are not going to invest anymore and as a matter of fact, we're going to start to shut down the coal plants and the and the gas plants, and we're going to build more solar and more wind and do it more quickly. But, you know, even PGE will tell you that the most efficient new source of energy is to cause us to use less where we're currently using it to make things more efficient. So, buildings. I started to, to go there. Building we. So our building code in Oregon is controlled by one group of people at the state level. Each city doesn't get to have its own building code. It's odd. The rest of the country doesn't do that, but the home builders managed to push that through back when the Republicans were still in power, I think. Um, So our building code, contrary to what they will tell you, is behind certainly all of the West Coast and many, many other states. It's generally on par with the federal minimum, which is to say that both buildings in Washington and buildings in California are being built to a much higher standard and what ways can they do better better insulation I mean windows yeah i mean the the windows that we're using are crap okay. just there's there's its it's subtle stuff and it's not hard and it's not that expensive. I'll give you an example there's a um affordable housing complex, that's built out in Orenco, right there by Orenco station, it's called the Orchards at Orenco. And Walsh Construction did the work, and I know the architect. And the second phase of that, they said, all right, let's just do bang for the buck, best, best energy efficiency we can do without spending a lot of money, right? So it came in about 4% over what standard construction costs would be. The utility bills for each one of those units is fourteen dollars a month. Hmm. Significantly more efficient. Yeah, for a four percent bump, and that's given that some of that stuff is specialty items, right? If you buy a three triple pane window right now, that's a specialty item. Imagine if the building code said all build all windows must be triple pane windows. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the price in triple pane windows is going to come down. Yeah, for sure. So. We can, we can dramatically affect all the buildings that are being built now. And there's a lot of building going on now to make them more efficient. And those will be on the ground for a hundred years. So it really matters, right? Then we can go back and start to retrofit some of the existing buildings and make them more efficient. So that's none of that's sexy, right? But it's, it's a big deal and, and it can
0: really drop the greenhouse gas. And so what do you do? You give companies incentives subsidies, tax breaks, like if they do this, like wh- how do you get it through? How do you process it? It
1: depends on what thing you're doing, yeah. right? Um, like one of the areas, and, and this would be a straight subsidy, would be to go into low-income housing and start doing those buildings because you know those are the crappiest buildings out there. And yeah. Those people are paying 200 bucks a month for electricity or whatever, because that's just like a sieve. Yeah, You know, it's like trying to heat a tent. Yeah. Um, for for the industrial buildings and some of the bigger commercial buildings. Yeah, you could do some kind of tax break thing. You could do some kind of incentive program. There's, you know, that's the details that I wanna get into conversations with people who have those. And I have, you know, I've, I've been building relationships way beyond what the mayor of Milwaukee should be building um, for years because I'm interested in the bigger picture, always mm-hmm. have been. So I can sit down with people who do own a hundred really large industrial buildings in the state and say, okay, what would it take from the state level to cause you to
0: X and... Well, what's your opinion then on the fact that there's 50 different rules in the country? Would it be better to abolish state lines and have a federal... Building, building code? For everything. Well, there is a federal building code.
1: That's the minimum that you can build a building at. Um, and and it makes sense for there to be building different building codes. Because imagine the difference that a building needs to have in, say, Phoenix, Arizona, or Nome, Alaska. Or in Tulsa, where there's tornadoes. Yeah. Right. Very different places. You need different standards. You need to be thinking about different things. So you don't want... you don't want to say there can only be one building code nationwide because there's geographical differences, Um, but there could be a minimum energy standard for sure. They could, the the federal government, and and it was interesting, we just tried to do that. Um, all All of the cities that are trying to do climate work, which is significant at this point, rallied together and in the process where the state, where the federal building code is voted on we got the votes to, to bump the energy code faster. And through some loophole, the powers that be gutted that. And I, don't, I, I missed the, the loophole. I don't, I'm not in that world, but you know, my building code official was one of the people that voted to increase the building code.
0: Again, billionaires controlling everything. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's your level of optimism when you get up and go to work every day? Like you're, some days, are you just like I'm going to go back to taking photos?
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. There are absolutely days
1: where I just am like, I'm done. It's just we can't, we can't fix this. It's I should just go enjoy life because it's like you know, let's you know, the sinking Titanic. Let's throw a party. Yeah. Um, but there's other days that, and this probably goes back to you know, I was a voracious reader as a kid. Um, well, most of my life until I became. Mayor, and I haven't read a book since because <laughs> <laughs> I have all this other crap I have to read. Yeah. Um, Audible, Audible saves me. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I get to listen to books occasionally. Um, but I devoured everything that Edgar Rice Burroughs ever wrote, and I don't know if you. I don't know. So Tarzan, okay. uh, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, okay. you know, a, a lot of sort of classic um, fiction, pulp fiction. But you go back and read that stuff, the language level that was used at that time is so superior to what we currently, even even in like literature. Uh-huh. Like, if you pick up a book today that, that, that all the people would say, This is literature, the lang- level of language, the level of. of, of um, the difference in vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. It is, is really watered down. Yeah. I, I, it was funny because I, I hadn't read that stuff in 40, 50 years. And I sat down with my kid when he was little mm-hmm. and started to read him the original Tarzan of the Apes. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> anyway, um, that was a complete.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's all right.
1: <laughs> it's just something that struck me. Uh, but, but the heroes in his books are always in these situations where it is hopeless, it is utterly hopeless. And the only reason they survive is this, this tenacity, this willingness to just go, I'm just gonna go for it and do what I can do. And they always survive.
0: Well, yeah. Whenever, that's,
1: that's baked into my DNA now.
0: Whenever I get to that point, I'm like, what else are you gonna do?
1: Right. You're gonna give up?
0: Then then what? Right. You have to just keep trying. How could you live with yourself? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's just part of being a human. I mean, I guess some people give up, but- A lot but of
1: people have given up, a lot. I don't know. That's, you know, I mean, that's, that's the drug addiction thing. That's the, that's, you know, people are, they're giving up. Yeah. A lot of folks. Yeah. Tuning out, you know, Netflix and a bottle of Cabernet, you know. <laughs> Sounds like a good night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to think about the world. just
0: <laughs> uh, Okay. Well, that was, that's a lot of political stuff. Let's go. Before we wrap it up, let's go to your career with uh, taking photo and working with National Geographic. Because that, not to discredit them now, but twenty years ago and and prior, that was that was a big deal, was it not? To shoot for National Geographic. Oh yeah,
1: it, it's it's so funny. Um, that is one of the most sought after jobs in the world. I mean you could walk down the street and ask people, what's your dream job? And I guarantee you one out of 20 of them will say National Geographic mm-hmm. photographer, right? And yet at any given time, there's like 30 people doing it, maybe 40. They've got more publications now. So maybe maybe it's a hundred now, yeah. right? And there's there's no more staffers, everybody's freelance. Um. So getting that job back then was, was harder than being an NBA star.
0: How, how did Statist- that happen? Statistically,
1: for you? well, I'd said in college, "I'm going to shoot for National Geographic." I, I had friends that reminded me of that that wrote, "You did it! Can't believe it!" Um, so it was my it was literally my dream coming out of high school to to shoot for National Geographic, and I I did a couple of things. One, I learned lots of other skills. Uh, I became a pretty solid kayaker, whitewater kayaker, whitewater anything, canoe, kayak, raft, whatever. Um, Learned to ice climb, learned to rock climb, learned to, I was a scuba diver by the time I was 14. I was the youngest certified scuba diver in the state of Colorado. Wow. Um, uh, You know, all those kinds of skills, camping, backpacking, um, trekking, just all the things. So, so that there was virtually not an assignment I could be sent on that I wasn't physically prepared for. So, that was one piece. And then I just, that was everything I lived for. I, you know, I spent the money I would make it a job on Kodachrome
0: and I would go out and shoot. Yeah, because you were shooting film, right? Which is a way different beast than shooting digital photos in your iPhone. You actually have to know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz you don't get to go, "Oh yeah, I didn't get that one." Yeah. Well, and the thing you can't really teach people in my opinion is composition. Yeah. The way that you frame something in the photo is so important, and so many people don't understand that. That would will...
1: that and seeing light. Yeah. That's another thing that that most people don't don't do well. Yeah. So, um I'm, I, I, I suppose I credit that to the hundreds of hours as a kid. I sat, my folks had a storeroom and they had all the old issues of National Geographic and Life Magazine and Look
0: in boxes. And I just used to sit down there for hours and hours. You could and tell hours. that that's what you wanted to do is take photos that would get published. As a kid, you
1: knew that. I don't know that I knew then that that's what I wanted to do. I was just fascinated by those. I don't think there was like a ulterior, you know. This is I'm I'm getting ready to do this. It was just I was just personally fascinated by those, by seeing the world through a really well trained eye. And um, so I so I had that going on. I I actually wanted when I was a freshman in high school I wanted to be a marine biologist, and then I had a really crappy biology teacher and. (laughs) Ruined it for you? Yeah, kind of. Uh, that and I went to Brooks Institute one summer. My folks went out to San Diego for a vacation, and I talked them into taking me to Brooks, which was like the end-all, be-all, you know, um, marine biology school. And I got to talk to a couple of the biologists, and they're and I was like, "Well, what was the last place you dove, or you know, like that, you know, kid?" And they're like, "Oh God, I haven't been diving in decades. Now I all my work's in the laboratory." And I was like, "Ew." <laughs> Sounds terrible. I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau, right? Yeah. That was that was my thing. That I, he was one of my heroes growing up. Um, I had his whole encyclopedia, all that stuff. Um, so when when that one went out the window, I was like, okay, how do I how do I do that life? How do I do all the things I want to do and get paid for it? And photographer
0: was the answer. It's pretty cool. You were around in that time frame because I don't think people get paid to take photos anymore. <laughs>
1: Uh, There are still some people that get paid to take photos, but it becomes really obvious when you sit down with a magazine today and a magazine from 20 years ago that not enough people are getting paid to take pictures. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, geographic still got pretty high standards, um, but I'd say even they, I I will look through issues sometimes. I'll just go, there's not one picture in there that blew my mind. And that's not, Normal. I mean, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have said that.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, they have a competition every year, right? Where somebody wins best photo of the year, National Geographic. Don't they do something like that? Mm, they They do a thing where
1: uh, readers can send in photos and then every month they publish one of those photos, but I don't think
0: they do- No, no, like no I best. mean choosing one of the, the staffers who took the photo. They don't do that? I, I don't think they, no. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, So when you were doing that for them, was it full time? Like, were they paying you a salary? No, I was contract. Mm. So I had a particular
1: contract um, and just would get assignments and
0: go for a month to Australia and shoot whatever. They would just, was it email or was it like a letter in the mail? Email. They would send you an yeah. email and say, we need you to go to the Outback and shoot some tarantulas.
1: There were, there were also phone calls involved, generally speaking. But yeah, I mean, and, and that's just the initial, Hey Mark, are you available in January to go do this thing? And then, you know, we'd start talking about it and I would talk to the writer and,
0: you know, we would figure out what we needed to do. And, and you would purchase, tickets and all that kind of stuff and then just ask for reimbursements or what? Yep. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah. That's a commercial photographer. So I I did so I did editorial,
1: which is, you know, National Geographic. I shot a lot for Sports Illustrated. I shot for Outside. I shot for Men's Journal and lot lots of magazines. But um so that was one half of my business. And you don't make a living doing that. Yeah. Half of the business because uh Editorial typically paid back then around $300 a day, which seems like decent money, but considering the, I had over $100,000 worth of camera equipment, I had to insure that camera equipment, and have employees do things, it was not, you couldn't make a living on that. What you made a living on was the commercial work, doing advertising work. So Mm -hmm. I shot from, you know, Adidas, Salem (laughs) cigarettes. There were some times I sold my soul, I will admit it. Uh you know, but a lot of Jeep, um, UPS, a lot of lot of different companies I did ads for. And that paid really well. Yeah. That paid, you know, from five to ten grand a day. <laughs> Just fees. That's not that's not uh any of the expenses. Yeah. So that's um so I I always tried to keep a good mix of that. Um but almost coincidentally, as I was really ramping up with National Geographic, was also at the beginning of the last downturn, when it actually started to occur, not when everyone else kind of noticed it. When everyone else noticed it was when the bu- housing bubble broke. You're talking about 2007? Yeah. Yeah, but it started happening sooner than that. If um, if you if, I used to be able to tell you the date because you could see it in magazines. You'd go to the library and look at magazines and go, Oh, wow, they got skinnier. why they get skinnier? Less ads. If Less ads, less content. Hmm. They literally, I mean, you can go and, and you just see, wow, that's when the economy started to tank. Because the companies didn't have the money to advertise? They felt like a downturn was coming, and they were reeling in. And for a lot of companies, they think advertising is... almost like hedging their bets. Like they kind of don't really believe in it to some degree. Hmm. Um, I always assumed they thought that was the most important part. Shelf space on the, in the grocery store is probably more important to them than, than the ad. Huh. But yeah, I mean, clearly like Nike became Nike because of Wyden Kennedy. Yeah, It, it would not have done what it's done yeah. had Wyden Kennedy not done the phenomenal job they did. So advertising actually is very powerful. But there's a lot of industries that don't believe that, that mm-hmm. don't really think that that's the case. And maybe for them it's not, you know? If you're, if there's only three diaper companies and everybody's got to buy diapers, yeah. how important is it Yeah, really? It's probably more important that you have more shelf space in the grocery store. I see.
0: And so whatever you got to do to do that, um, so. So what was the most rewarding then But between all those magazines where you were um, not getting paid well, but uh getting to go cool places or meet with cool people what was what was the best part about national geographic or um sports illustrated
1: those were those were my two f- i got to do some of the coolest assignments with those two um probably more with national geographic than, than SI. but one of my favorites is still an si assignment uh got to go uh dive with hammerhead sharks off of the there's islands off of costa rica called the uh Oh my God, the Cocos, the Cocos Islands. It's like 300 miles off the coast. It's like the opening scene of the very first Jurassic Park when they're flying into those islands, Yeah, that's the Cocos Islands. Okay. Uh, so it's very remote, takes a day and a half on a boat to get out there. So then you spend t- 10 days living on a boat out there and you dive and it's just unbelievable or was, I don't know what it's like anymore, but 20 years ago, just hundreds and hundreds of hammered sharks, schools of them, you know, and huge schools of barracudas and schools of tuna would come through. And... Were you ever worried about getting your arm bit off or anything? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's certain situations and I was in one in, uh, on one of my assignments for geographic in, in Southern Australia, but um, really we're not on the menu for sharks. We're, when people get bit by a shark, that's usually a shark making a mistake. Um, surfers get bit a lot. Because from below, the surfer, the, the sort of the silhouette of a surfer is similar to the silhouette of a sea lion. Hmm. Um, and and typically, you, you don't see people getting consumed by the shark. They get bit. Yeah. And then the shark goes, blah, spits them out, and then they die because, you know, they lost a leg. Yeah. Um, they bleed to death. But uh, you're not really on the menu. And, and scuba divers in particular, Actually, the the hardest part about that assignment was trying to get a really nice close shot of a hammerhead shark and a diver, because the bubbles that you're emitting scare the sharks. Huh. So the closest I could kind of get was maybe 20 feet. And you're shooting when you're shooting underwater, you shoot with really really wide lenses because even in really clear water, there's stuff in the water. So if you're trying to shoot something that's you know 100 feet away and using a telephoto lens, for example, it just looked really soft, really. Crappy. Mm-hmm. So you try and be really close and shoot with really wide lenses. So um yeah, I was how ha- I actually ended up going down twice, poor me, to uh do this trip in Costa Rica. And the only reason that worked out is because the the writer had to bail the first time, some something happened with a baseball team or something, and he had to go cover that. So the, when they decided to send the rider, I was like, well, don't you think you need pictures of Swifty diving with the sharks? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we probably do. So you should go back. And the reason that, I mean, besides the fact to get to dive 10 more days, um, I had figured out the first time how I had to do it. And mm-hmm. how I had to do it was I needed to go down there with just one other diver. Because usually everybody goes at once. Yeah. So you got 30 people in the water. All, you know. All yeah, that's too many. Monkey fish, right? And, and, um, the sharks stay away, so I managed to, to do one dive where I went down with just one of the guides, one of the dive masters, and we got we got the shot that became the shot from that from that uh, thing. And it was this hammerhead is probably five feet away from me, swimming right at me, and and uh, Jose was kind of just right up over its shoulder, <laughs> smaller. It was a cool shot. But that was,
0: that was an awesome, awesome trip. Um, well, and I imagine with film, I never really shot film. I, I didn't start until it was digital and then, you know, with iPhones. But um, you can tell what it looks like right after because you can see it. But with film, you're probably just shooting, what, 500, 1,000 photos a day. You have no idea what you have until oh, you go develop, right?
1: Oh, if you're lucky. Think about underwater photography, all right? 36 shots, you have 36 shots in your camera. You can't change film underwater. Yeah. Right? So the guys, the hardcore guys like Duble, David Duble, they had these, like almost a raft that they would lower down and it would have six or eight cameras on it. Uh-huh. And then he would just work an area and just change out the cameras. And he had assistants ferrying stuff back and forth. and And then he would have to do a decompression dive. You know, you'd have to sit at different levels and people are bringing him tanks down. Um, Because a lot of the stuff we were, what was happening with the Coke at the Cocos, uh, we were at 100, 120 feet. You can only stay there for like eight, 10 minutes. Uh And then you have to start getting into much shallower water. Otherwise, you're going to have to do a decompression dive and people are going to have to bring you tanks. So, um, I never I never had that luxury of having multiple cameras. So every dive that I shot, I was like 36 pictures. Sometimes I took two cameras. I had my little Nikonos and I had the big housed Nikon.
0: You had to really make sure you wanted to take that photo. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you
1: had to th- you know every all the things had to be right, right? Your exposure, the how much flash you were
0: putting out. The, was, the direction of the flat, all the things had to be just perfect. Yeah, because there wasn't enough light 120 feet down, right? Is no. it basically black?
1: It's pretty dark. Now, you know, the modern, some of the modern um, digital cameras, you could shoot underwater. Yeah. Um, but the difference is, and it's not just the amount of light, it's the color of the light. So when you get down to about 15 feet, and I'm gonna blow this again, uh, but you lose like the red spectrum. And then at... 30 feet, you lose the orange spectrum and it, you, know, you you just start to lose portions of the spectrum of light. So when you get down at 120 feet, it's basically blue and green. That's it, that's, that's the colors. So did you have to color your flash? No, because the flash isn't traveling, that, that light from the flash is not traveling 120 feet through water. It's traveling three feet out from my camera and three feet back to, to right, from For, the yeah, flash yeah. back. So six feet, so, and, and you know the further away you got, the bluer it got. But you're you're taking basically sunlight down to the ocean floor
0: huh. with the flash. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that that was definitely the most challenging. Then I mean, all the stuff you shot on on the surface was much easier, I'm sure. Because I saw some stuff on your website. You were looked like you had been to Africa. Am I wrong? I. I was in Africa,
1: um, never on assignment, sadly. Okay. Uh, no, I the the only time I was in Africa, I was actually still a high school kid or had just graduated high school. I was shooting a lot by then, but you know, I had shot both of my high school yearbooks, junior and senior year, uh, was the edit- photo editor for the paper, all that kind of stuff. So I was a decent photographer by the time I was graduating from high school. Um, but yeah, all my, and if, I'm trying to remember what's, from Africa and on my
0: uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm confusing it with something else. I just uh, I went through and you got some really nice stuff on there. We'll put the link in with the episode so people can go check it out. But yeah, you've got some. Make pretty sure good you stuff. got the right link. <laughs> I had to change that because I put my uh, my
1: political site is now at markgamba.com, which has been my website forever and ever and ever. Yeah, and it's funny when I Google Mark Gamba photographer, it still wants to point you to markgamba.com.
0: Mm. Well, I think the one with the photos was Mark Gamba photo. Photo Yeah. Yeah. We had to create that so we could do the political thing. Cool. Anyway. Very cool. Uh, Well, I think that's a good spot. Uh, I appreciate you coming down and talking with me. Uh, I could do another five or six hours with you, but I know you got (laughs) stuff to do.
1: So thank you. That was fun. Thank you. Cool.